This is the State of Innovation podcast, where digital transformation's finest share their strategies and stories. Hey there, and welcome to the State of Innovation, where we discuss digital transformation strategies, stories, and the mindset behind it. I'm your hype guy, Luke Bahanaki. In today's episode, we have our host, Misha Hannon, from yours truly, Deep Dive Technology. And he's joined by his friend and digital transformation counterpart, Kaiser Nassim, CEO at Tech Platforms FZE. Now, Misha and Kaiser built a quick friendship, which actually originated on LinkedIn. And they were happy to have the chance to sit down in person in Dubai at the Seed Group headquarters. In this episode, we cover some of Kaiser's 40 years of experience working with banks around the world how the world is rapidly changing during COVID, and how the use of technology is going to be what helps us rebound from it. We cover the mindset and strategy in digitizing companies, and the importance of sustainable development goals to innovation roadmaps. This is a true digital transformation dialogue amongst two of the best. Whether you're watching or listening, make some popcorn, enjoy the episode, Visit stateofinnovation.show for all future episodes and join the conversation happening on LinkedIn. So, um, Mr. Kaiser, uh, first of all, I would like to really thank you, uh, and I want to say that I really appreciate that you accepted my invite to have this uh, lovely morning uh, conversation about uh, digital technology and uh, how actually the, wor- the world is getting changed uh, during uh, this time of COVID and how the technology actually helps uh, entire society in the world to go through. So uh, really would like to, to say you a uh, huge thing. Uh, thanks for that. And uh, I really like, as we discussed um, really a few minutes before, like let's run this as, let's try to run it as a conversation, discussion. I know that you have a lot, a lot of uh, uh, stories uh, from your background. I know that you spent about 40 years uh, of your life uh, working with banks around the globe. Uh, so. Please uh, introduce yourself, and uh, that our people will, who will watch this will know um, know about you. Well, first of all, thanks a lot, Misha. I mean, it's my pleasure actually to be here, uh, and especially with you. I mean, you yourself are uh, so much involved in the technology landscape uh, globally, not only in the UAE, uh, and you know you've done a lot of work, and I'm sure we'll talk about that also. <laughs> so it's a pleasure. I mean, I. Whatever little I can share, I mean, like you said, I've been an international development banker uh, for about 40 years now of my career. I was also an engineer for the first five years. Uh, But most of my life, if uh, uh, I was to recall, is helping countries develop and helping the private sector within those countries develop. Uh, So over the 40 years, this has meant different things. You know, because uh, it meant anything from developing uh, uh, project finance in some countries to helping small businesses grow, to promoting entrepreneurship, and to where we are today 
and more recent times in helping all these businesses and countries and governments to leverage technology so that they can improve the way they are working. So indeed, it's a pleasure. Uh, and uh, I would like to share, I have uh, many stories. I don't know if I can share all of them. <laughs> uh, but I think we, given the context of our discussion today and given you know where we are in terms of your background uh, technology, so perhaps the last seven, eight, ten years of my experience it would be more relevant. And you know we can talk about how I have worked with banks uh, who were initially scared of technology, and then they wanted to adapt technology, and then they didn't know how to do that. Uh, and when they knew how to do it, they didn't know how to convince their people. And you know, so a lot of stories on that. But I'll just stop here. Uh, and, you know, let's continue the discussion. I'm pretty sure we will have a lot of interesting <laughs> talks today. And uh, keeping in mind my background, my Canadian background, uh, for me it was really interesting to discover that you were, uh, please allow me to read this, like the World Business Angel Investment Forum Senator for Canada. Can you tell a few words about that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as the name suggests, uh, this is a forum for business angels worldwide. So it's called the World Business Angels Investment Forum. Uh, it comprises individuals and companies and even governments, actually. Uh, for example, the G20 is part of that. And mm -hmm. the reason they're part of that is because a lot of work that uh, this forum does is financial inclusion. Uh, so the financial inclusion part of the, of, of the G20 is uh, sort of part of the World Business Investment uh, Forum as well. Uh, and basically we are trying to educate uh, investors as well as entrepreneurs on why angel investing is perhaps a, a good choice as well when mm -hmm. you know, you're looking for investment because of the fact that angel investment is normally smart money. So it's not just investing, which is another area, I mean, I can talk a lot about that, that throwing money at anything is not a solution at all. Exactly. So this used to be, you know, the mindset that, okay, if we can get a loan, if we can get equity, our business will, you know, flourish. But obviously that's not the case. So we call this smart money. So smart, smart money is you have money, but you have also with it some sort of advisory services, which guides you on how you spend that money and how do you use that money. And more importantly, how do you add value to it so you can return it to whoever gave it to you? So that's in, in a nutshell. And I represent the Angel Investment Community of Canada on the World Business uh, Angel Investment oh, Fund. So interesting. Yeah. So, so technically, when you talk about smart money, it's like uh, banking and digital transformation specifically should be responsible on the use of technology and use the smart money. The, the, this is the angle, right? This is the angle, absolutely. And I mean, I've spoken at length, I mean, you know that, uh, Misha, on responsible financing, and now I speak a lot about responsible use of technology. And responsible financing means that as a bank or as a lender, you don't just give money because that's a typical mindset. A bank thinks their, their job or their business is to lend money, and that's it. But in order to mitigate the risk of the use, because for the bank, it's a tool to mitigate risk. Mm -hmm. so it's not just the models and you know the business assessment. It's also whether the entrepreneur has the wisdom to use that money properly. And if they do, the risk to the bank is less. It's simple. So that's how we explained it to banks over the last 15, 20 years, when we said, look, you need to also give some sort of 
non-financial advisory services to these clients of yours. And banks initially said, why? We're a financial institution. Why non-financial advisory? So this is why we need non-financial uh, non advisory. Hey, it's really interesting. So technically, you te you're telling that uh, banks should realize that they live in a new, new era, right? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you, you mentioned once, like, I did some homework about your, <laughs> your, your, your speeches. Uh, you mentioned once that uh, we've uh, catapulted into the digital era. What do you mean by that? Well, like, especially COVID. for banks. Yeah, this is COVID, and this is now. I mean, this probably, I, uh, it was in one of my interviews probably, or maybe in my articles somewhere in March or April. Uh, so what I meant by that was, I've been involved, and you have, many of us have, in trying to encourage institutions, in my case mostly financial institutions, to use technology to improve the way they develop their products and the way they distribute their products or offer mm -hmm. their products to the channels. And it's been a very painful and you know slow process for many reasons. Uh, I, I mean, you know most of the reasons, but let me repeat it, I've repeated it many times. And they've been using that for the last 50 or even 100 years. Uh, so they didn't understand it uh, because of this legacy mindset. When they did start understanding it, and the reason they started understanding it because since they weren't using technology, there were alternate platforms, what we call fintechs, and you know, in, in every business there were alternate oh, platforms. DeFi. We started eating into DFIs, DFIs. We started eating into their business, and that's when they said, "Oh wow, we need to do that." And then the process was of mindset. So you had to change the mindset. So all this was very slow and painful, but mm -hmm. I work with a lot of banks globally. I mean, in the Middle East, in Eastern Europe, in Central Asia, in Asia, and trying to change that. So why I said that, you know, all these mindsets of people were catapulted is because the market demanded digital finance. People were sitting at home, they weren't able to go to a bank, so they were using digital platforms for buying groceries, they were using digital platforms for banking, they were using digital platforms to speak with each other. So we spoke with each other on Zoom. So yeah, the, this, this is how we were actually connected so, for the first time, so right? People who did not, who were even scared of technology had to use it. So they were catapulted into it. So today we are in a position where the mindsets are now attuned that yes, we need to use digital. This has proved to be very useful when people, and a lot of people now want it. Those who used it, who didn't want it before, now that they've had six months of experience of using it. So that's what I mean when I say we've been catapulted or accelerated into the digital era today. I actually see this on my side like a lot. Like uh, I spent close to 30 years working with technology. And again, like uh, traveled around the globe, like uh, was involved in projects literally like almost everywhere, like Australia, China, India, South Africa, Europe, uh, United States, Canada. I do remember those times like when people were saying like, yeah, this, what you labeled as legacy, right? Yeah, this is how we, we used to do this and it works and why would we change it? And I remember like how hard it was and it's still not easy to explain to people that guys, yeah, you need to adopt a new mindset. Actually technology, oh, opens a doors for you to even generate a new streams of revenue. It's not just like digital transformation about like, let's upgrade the, to the new platform. Digital, being a digital, this is kind of my view at least, 
uh, that uh, being a digital uh, company, even though like it's like originally they don't see themselves as a digital, helps to business to grow and start offering a new services and new products to, to, to their customers, right? And um, I do believe that banks actually will realize that they, they have to become digital business first rather than financial institute. Absolutely. And look, I mean, just coming back to you, uh, you're involved in a lot of technology platforms and, you know, I mean, like you also mentioned, technology is a tool, right? I mean, you need to make sure you have the right part of technology. So is it payments, is it lending, or is it the black blockchain platform? So I think what you are doing using the blockchain technology or distributed ledger technology to add value, what you said is that it can find new sources of revenue. It can help look for new sources of revenue for companies, especially when you, you know, the project, I mean, uh, you may want to talk about in more detail on recycling, for example, where yep. you're using distributed ledger, ledger technology to track how material is used, disposed of, recycled, and coming back. I mean, this actually saves a lot of money. Uh, even uh, the use of blockchain technology in the financial sector for trade finance, for example. Yep. Uh, I mean, there are cases which were uh, proof of concept, actually. I mean, again, I maintain it's not so widely used yet, although it should be. But it, uh, it will come. It will come. It will come. <laughs> it's inevitable because of, especially again, COVID. So we've been catapulted because supply chains have been disrupted. Uh, trade finance has been disrupted. And trade finance is the blood, life and blood, uh, lifeline and blood for small businesses to flourish. And there's a trillions of dollar gap in the amount of trade finance required today. Mm -hmm. I, for, I forget actually the figure. Uh, but that can be filled in if distributed ledger technology is used to cut short the time of documentation, for example, yeah. to cut short the time of delivery. So, I mean, again, this is a technology you're involved in more. I mean, you know much more about it than me. And, you know, we'd like to hear about what use cases you are working on in, in the use of blockchain technology. Talking about blockchain, again, like I really see uh, blockchain is just a platform and it's a framework that helps businesses to develop, okay? Uh, I'm, uh, I love blockchain as, like, as a technical person, okay? But again, from a business side perspective, I, I'm not going to dance on a table like just to convince people to use blockchain because it's a blockchain, okay? All technologies uh, over the course of my life, I've seen uh, always like uh, instrument that helps identify or create a new opportunities to the business, okay? I never was uh, okay just uh, with the concept, okay, and this particular technology can optimize the way you do the business. It's always good, okay? It's a backbone of the, each business. I always was thinking about, okay, if I adopt something new, if I go through the process of bringing new stuff, what new I, I would be able to do, okay? So this is how I've seen this, uh, all those technologies that uh, we were implementing. And blockchain right now, I do believe that brings this additional value to the business. It's a, a, a value added, it's not just, Okay, let's optimize the process uh, and then eliminate the delays of the transaction. I think it's not enough. It's not the real selling point of this technology. Uh, like we can eliminate the, the delays uh, uh, on transaction with, with many other ways. But 
blockchain is actually opening a gate for the art of possibility, if you will, okay, that will allow businesses to bring and identify new values and new options, what could be done, right? So this is how I see it. Look, absolutely. I mean, I agree with you 100%. And you actually have hit upon a very important point also, which is another pain point I faced when we were dealing with uh, institutions for digitalization, which is strategy. So you're absolutely right. Technology is a platform. Now, which technology to use for what is the strategy? Exactly. And that is where banks, financial institutions and others have failed because they just say, okay, we want to digitalize. Now, the strategy should say, what do you want to digitalize? Because you cannot digitalize the whole institution in one go. So there are so many processes. There's a front-end process, there's a back-end process, there's a middle-office process. So where, so you have to have a strategy which says, in my institution, I feel that to be customer-centric, I need to address this problem. So let's say you've identified the problem as delivering your product is, is the one you want to improve. So then you say, okay, which is the best technology for me? Exactly. Is it DLT? Is it artificial intelligence? Is it machine learning? Is it a platform which is available in the market? Maybe I can just buy a platform, which is a delivery platform. Or may, maybe we even need to stop using this oh, at so, all. Exactly. <laughs> so that is also, by the way, the point I'm making, and you, I think, brought it up, is something which institutions don't think through. They just say, okay, we want to digitalize. That's it. Yep. And we want blockchain. Maybe sometimes you say, we want blockchain. Well, I walk away many times from, from businesses where, like, we want a blockchain. Please move us to the blockchain. And when we were studying them, like the idea, when we were doing this business analysis, I came back and said, like, guys, I don't see value. Why would you go to the, with the blockchain? It brings zero value to you. And like, it was really interesting conversations a few times. They're like, Misha, one of your companies actually delivering blockchain solutions. Give us, give us a product. I'm like, no, you don't need it. Like, it's not the case. I'm not here just to push you to start adopting something that you don't need. Where's the value? Right? So um, it's interesting. And the, which brings me to another point. I mean, there's so many things to discuss. Is That's why there's a reason to articulate and educate. These are the reasons. I mean, like what we're doing right now, and several others are doing, I mean, we're not the only one, is make the users of technology institutions understand how they can use technology. And there is, you know, like six years ago when we started doing it, institutions didn't even know, okay, they need to leverage technology. They thought the IT infrastructure they had, the core banking, for example, in the banks is good enough. So you have to talk to them in conferences, in, you know, talk shows and events. So they, they, the people have to be educated on technology. So this is exactly what you're doing, you've been doing. Uh, and at some point, I mean, I'd like to learn more about your use cases of uh, blockchain because like, Absolutely. You know, how you identify that, okay, this problem needs blockchain. Yep. I mean, that is yep. very important, I think. Well, well, we will talk about it. Um, I wanted to ask you something, and I'm pretty sure a lot of people will appreciate your opinion on the topic, uh, especially keeping in mind your uh, background in finances, okay? Right now with the COVID situation, I read some of the facts that uh, right now we have $10 trillion as the erosion of the glo global GDP caused by COVID. So if I'm not mistaken, it's 10% uh, of the global GDP. Uh, would you call the current situation as the global crisis? 
Well, first of all, let me just also mention, I mean, because I've written a lot about it and I've actually also spoken about it. So this has been a moving figure over the COVID period starting in March and in April. So it started from anywhere between 2 trillion of erosion and it went up to 15 trillion. I think the 10 trillion probably was sometimes in uh, June. Uh, so yes, the global economy has been eroded. Uh, I don't think, and these are IMF figures, by the way, these are not figures which I, I mentioned, these are IMF figures, and again, very difficult for them even to track because of the speed of, uh, of the spread of COVID and the closure of businesses, uh, and you know, all these new uh, programs coming in place, relief packages being offered. Uh, but it's ballpark figure is about 10% of the global economy is going to be eroded. Today, obviously, we also have figures of individual countries. I mean, like, mm -hmm. for example, in Europe, we know that the UK economy is going to be the worst affected, 18 or 19% erosion in their uh, GDP, the US even worse. Uh, I think globally, the only economy which perhaps will grow at 1 or 2% is China. As of now, I mean, these things can also change. So it is a crisis. Obviously, it is a crisis. It's a crisis which I say is still unfolding. So these figures, uh, I mean, one thing is certain that they are going to go down. Mm -hmm. Whether it's 10 trillion or 12 trillion or 13 trillion, I think that's a boot point. The fact is that anywhere between uh, 8 to 15% of global GDP is going to be eroded. And the more important part is that uh, to recover that, to bring back that value to global economy is not going to be in 2021. Easy. It's not going to be easy and it's going to be soon. It's probably be looking at 2023. But a major part of that recovery uh, will be due to the use of technology because commerce has suffered, e-commerce has started. So for e-commerce, you need the technology, technology platforms. Supply chains have suffered. Logistics have suffered. So for restoring that supply chain, you need technology so that yeah. you can do it more efficiently. So technology would be the answer of this rebound in rebound. global GDP and value-add countries. So I think that's all I can say at this point. So would you believe that because of the current situation, and I have my own opinion on that, like my current observations, but would you believe that the speed of adoption of new technology will change? Well, absolutely. It will change. It has changed, as a matter of fact, as we speak. Um, and you know it better than anyone else, uh, because it's now been realized by institutions which were even reluctant to start using technology, or maybe they even had started using technology, but they were doing it at a very slow pace mm -hmm. because of different reasons. Uh, but today, after COVID, after the market has now shown that this is the type of services that they require, when they're ordering food or whether they're communicating with uh, their work, their bosses or their friends. So you're using technology platforms or whether if you're doing banking. So a lot of this has been done over the last six months through digital platforms. Digital so platforms. Using technology. So that is, I think, now a given. And this will be the way the market is going to operate. Even so, because I know people and you know people who were scared of technology. Oh, yeah. They didn't even use an iPhone. And today, they can bank using an iPhone. So they've learned that. So yes, we've been expedited. And you know, institutions will now surely allocate budgets towards digitalization. OK. And talking about uh, digital transformation, like we, we had a lot of discussions about that. And uh, I think we agree that it's a journey. Uh, can you expand about, uh, about this a little bit just 
for our people who will, who will watch this uh, recording down the road. What do you mean by journey? Well, absolutely, because uh, I mean, like I mentioned earlier, that uh, you know, a CEO of a, of an institution might say, "Okay, I want to digitalize my institution." So that does not mean that you go and digitalize it, or that the CEO can then just digitalize the institution. The CEO, the, the the institutions, the bank, they need to realize that digitalization is not a one-time thing. Mm -hmm. First of all, you need to wrap a strategy around the digitalization. So depending on what type of institution it is, what part of the institution or the process do you want to digitalize? Is it the front end? Is it the back end? Is it the middle end? So you need to design a strategy around it. And that even within the back end processes, there are various processes. But for example, if it's a bank, mm -hmm. is it uh, assessing the risk of lending? Is it improving the turnaround times? Is it the cost of lending that you want to reduce because of the, your distribution channels? Or is it the recoveries that you want to make sure that they can come back to you at the right time and you know, you're using technology for that? So or, or maybe you want to bring new, value, new, new offerings. Or, yeah, or, yeah, or do you want to dig deeper into the market and yeah. go to consumers which you've not attracted before? So you want new sources of revenue. So all this would depend on what the business strategy of that bank is. So then you design based on the business strategy a digital strategy which is aligned with that. And then you start using, even before that we've already discussed it, but let me just emphasize it because it's very important, is what technology do you need? Like you mentioned yourself that yeah. companies say, oh, you're blockchain, we want blockchain, make us a blockchain. But why do you need blockchain? Why do you need it, do you need right? It? So how do you determine which technology you need? So you have to determine that. And then start building your uh, processes one at a time. So that's why it's called a journey. Yep. So it's not a six month, it's not even one year. And I think you mentioned it at some point that it's actually ongoing. It will never end. because I believe it never ends. Because like you said, the way technology is going, there will be new developments in the next five, seven, eight years which need to be adapted. And it's adapted not because the company wants it. It's going to be adapted because the market wants it. It's going to be market driven. The way the market wants to bank, the way the market wants to order food, the way the market wants to buy clothes, that's what will determine how institutions are digitalized. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, like when, when we get involved in uh, this de design of the digital transformation, uh, sometimes we see that, and we, like we observe it and we ask this question, actually those uh, C-suites, like what, what drives you? Why you even started to think about digital transformation? And uh, unfortunately, some, sometimes we realize that they, they do this because of fear of being disrupted. Being disrupted by competitors, being disrupted by some new, uh, new startups that now, by the way, they started to really, uh, they kind of developed the fear of startups. If 10 years ago, not so many enterprises really cared about startups. Now they really started to see that startups can take their, their cake. Do you see the same in banking? No, no, absolutely. I think I agree with you 100%. I mean, the way it's evolved, actually, is that uh, first of all, the market dynamics changed because of the, the dynamics of the population. You know, we had younger people, they had different demands in terms of the way the banks, since we're talking about banking. Uh, the banks were not able to meet those demands because of legacy systems we've spoken about because of mindset. 
So you had these alternate platforms which came out, the financial technology companies, the fintechs, mm -hmm. uh, and they were set up to address precisely the needs of these of this market, which is that they wanted uh, uh, to borrow on demand. They wanted the ability to be able to pay uh, their bills sitting where they are, not going to a branch. So these fintechs filled that gap. So the first reaction by banks was indifference. Mm -hmm. That's before the fear came. <laughs> yeah. Indifference. And they were indifferent because they said that, uh, you know, these small platforms, they will not be able to, uh, you know, do much harm to us because we've been in business for the last 100, 150 years, in some cases 200 years. But slowly and steadily, I think it's Wells Fargo and Citibank started giving out figures, especially in the retail side of banking, that these platforms were capturing about up to 25, 35% of their market share. Yeah. That's when the fear started. That, wow, look, we need to do something about it. Uh, but that again was the wrong reason because that's not because of fear that the CEO or the CEO should be saying that they want to digitize. The reason they want to digitize is because they have certain business targets and they have certain business, uh, they have products, they have services which they need to offer. So how best can they offer that services to a market which is demanding, um, you know, same time banking, same time uh, uh, whatever. Uh, so how can they offer that? That should be the and then that's where you get into the strategy and they should see, okay, where is our pain point? Where are we failing? Why is this FinTech being able to give a credit in three minutes? And for us, it takes three weeks. Why? So that's the type of question they should ask. Absolutely. And so now actually, then from the fear, they went into partnerships. So a lot of these banks started partnering with these FinTechs. Exactly. And so on and so forth. And, you know, we can talk about that in more detail if you like. But that's where we are today. So, Mr. Kaiser. Uh, tricky question, okay? <laughs> uh, if you were, how would you rebuild the banking industry from the ground if you would have this opportunity? Interesting. <laughs> what, uh, actually, even more, like, uh, what cool things would you add or what things would you kill that you believe bringing no value or something that you believe didn't change for the last 2,000 years of banking industry? Well, like I said, interesting question. The first thing, frankly, in today's market, we're in 2020, right, going forward, would be all these branches. You know, even today, most bank branches are huge overheads on the bank's revenue. Uh, and so that, and they're not needed because you don't really need to go into a branch to withdraw money with technology which is today available. So that would be the first thing. So two or three things. I mean, first of all, obviously the regulatory framework has to keep pace with the market demand. And the market demand obviously is that they need to want to, they need to do banking on a demand basis. So wherever they are, they don't want to walk into a branch. So how does technology enable that? And how does the regulatory framework? So I would change and adapt the regulatory framework. I would start offering products. So the bank should build channels of distribution, which are uh, digital. So it could be through iPhones, it could be through smartphones, it could be through agents. In some countries, you have agency networks. So these are not bank branches, these are existing businesses. Grocery stores, for example, can become banks, or post offices can become banks. So for that, you need a regulatory framework. But that's what I would use to cut costs. The type of products would also differ. So if you need, uh, for example, credit, so the ability to assess the risk of that credit should be through an algorithm. 
So you don't need a person to go in and look at a balance sheet, for example, or to visit the client uh, and look at you know where he lives. Your data should be able to do that. So how do you collect? How do you use data? So that's something I would build in today's banks. The other thing I would build is security. I think security. that's a big issue in the way technology is being used, and because of the fact that you know, I mean, we all know the the, the 2000s when corporate governance and Sarbanes-Oxley and you know, despite all those corporate governance regulations today and codes of conduct, we still have lapses in corporate governance and many lapses. So similarly in technology, although there is a lot of talk of being responsible in both innovating it and in the use of it, there are lapses and there always will be. So cybersecurity, I mean, you need to build in robust systems which will give confidence actually to the users of that technology that their data their information is being protected. Uh, and I think that's a huge task. It, it's really, really huge task. And it's a huge task because, I mean, again, you would know better than anyone, you need to keep pace because there are always going to be a step ahead of you. It's just like when you're innovating, you're always a step ahead of the regulator. So you will never have an ideal regulator framework to innovate in. But the regulators will catch up with you to wrap around the regulatory framework on the innovation because the innovation is useful for society for business so similarly in cybersecurity the cyber secure the cyber criminals are always going to be some ahead so institutions need to keep innovating and thinking of ahead of what could go wrong and making sure that the systems that they are building and the algorithms that they are writing are catering to uh, ensure that there is no cyber criminal activity exactly like talking about security cyber security Unfortunately, again, my, my experience that um, majority of times we work in a re, uh, reactive mode, not proactive mode in the, in the security. So, but security topic is uh, absolutely like huge topic that probably we, we will push it away for this, uh, another discussion, another recording. But uh, yeah, uh, security, I do believe it's really big, uh, big portion. And uh, I do believe actually that new technology can improve the security uh, situation, uh, not just in banking. Okay, for example, based on many researches about uh, blockchain adoption, uh, one of the reasons why uh, enterprises started to look at the blockchain technology is because of security. Because blockchain actually introduced additional layers of security, additional layers of uh, uh, cryptography. So it's a um, dif different framework that not in use currently by many enterprises, not just banks, okay? And uh, uh, one of the last reports, if I'm not mistaken, that was initiated by Deloitte, actually uh, discovered this really huge phenomenon that many enterprises, the, one of the reasons they're looking at the blockchain technology is because of uh, security. So it was really interesting uh, study about that. But just on this, I mean, if I can ask you a question on uh, DLT and blockchain, absolutely right. I think this is a technology which uh, will definitely have a wider use, and there are a lot of use cases. But the adoption so far has not been that that much, especially in the financial sector. I mean, there are a few banks may have done one or two transactions for trade finance uh, for a proof of concept. But why is it that it's not being widely adapted? Right now, I mean, what I understand is because of the speed, there is a limitation on the speed of uh, transactions, or what? I I do believe it's quite complex question, and uh, will require a complex answer as well. 
So um, I like based on our observation and where we were involved quite a lot, we see that actually the fintech adopts blockchain rapidly. Okay, and uh, the adoption rates they're really really high. Okay, and uh, uh, there are many uh, startups that manage to grow up to the level of enterprises that do leverage blockchain in the field of financial sector. Okay, uh, what we do see as a I consider as a slow adoption adoption ratio uh, adoption of blockchain outside of the uh, uh, financial sector. Okay, but uh, actually, what was the adoption rate even like last year? Right now, it's absolutely different. Now we see really much more uh, requests, still in many cases as a POC, uh, but much more requests uh, out uh, to validate the uh, the concept uh, of uh, adopting blockchain in the enterprise. And uh, we get involved in multiple initiatives for different industries far away from uh, uh, financial sector uh, on a blockchain. We do right now really big project about uh, supply chain, supply chain management uh, through blockchain platform and uh, actually supply chain management for the recycling industry. Right. So it's uh, actually the combination and uh, all this uh, infrastructure is actually going to leverage blockchain, okay? So we don't see uh, challenges from the speed of the transactions, it's, it's not there. Like uh, if you ask me, if we will again stay to the same theme of the current conversation about banking, I don't believe that uh, banks can compete with the blockchain on the speed of transactions, no way, okay? We get like you know, on the blockchain. We see like uh, transactions that can be uh, finalized in one second. Okay. Okay. But what we do see that, and I, I have really a strong belief in this, that uh, lack of the speed, desire speed of adoption of the blockchain, and not just blockchain, a new technology, it's because of the mindset of many people in those enterprises. They Really, some of them, they have a fear that technology will replace them. So it's kind of job security. So uh, sometimes, I don't want to use word sabotage the project, but uh, they're not supporting the, the initiative to bring new technology to the business. Sometimes they want to be there, but they have a lack of knowledge about the new stuff. And for whatever reason, they are not even, maybe sometimes not even motivated to study something new. And as an outcome of all that, we do see that uh, the speed of adoption is really, really slow. This is what I, uh, what I observe. Uh, uh, we would love to hear like what you've seen, what you're yeah, Absolutely, I mean, like I said, on blockchain specifically, I heard it because of the speed of transaction, but you're saying that's not correct. So it's largely the same issue, which is uh, fear of uh, losing jobs, for example, uh, mindsets, like in any other technology. In uh, blockchain, perhaps it's a little more difficult because I think in terms of understanding uh, what blockchain is, you know, mm -hmm. for the common person, even for professions actually, is a little more complex than understanding what artificial intelligence or machine learning can do. So maybe that's one of the other reasons. But for sure, I think going forward, 
if for no other reason than the fact that you know it's um, it's encrypted better, like you mentioned earlier, and the documentation of transactions is much more secure, if, if I may uh, venture to say, uh, and they are verified, you know, not by one central, yeah. you know, you know. So I think these are the advantages. So going forward, I would definitely see a lot of use of that. Uh, but change management absolutely is something which cuts across all this. And that's where I also come in and, you know, we discussed it earlier as well, is uh, educating the users of it also and those who are used or are going to deploy. So they need a lot of understanding of what it is. And you also touched upon maybe a subject for another discussion is ethics. Because are there going to be job losses or not? So if they are, then, you know, so these are things which, uh, and there's a lot of work going on. I mean, there's a lot of research happening in, uh, in the ethics of using artificial intelligence or technology. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, biases creeping into algorithms and all that stuff. So all these are issues which obviously need to be discussed, uh, but not unresolvable. I mean, you have a tool that's like any tool. That's, it's like the sword or the knife. You, you need to learn to use it, right? You how to use it properly. Yeah. It, not irresponsibly, you know, and I mean the same thing that uh, uh, do guns shoot people or do people shoot people? <laughs> well, no, Absolutely, it's a, it's a tool. And talking about pivot, um, whether in banking uh, we need to do a pivot. Pivot of uh, what bank really does as the core business. Look, I mean, I've always maintained the core business of a bank and it's a very responsible institution. That's the other thing. I've actually set up banks in developing countries. I've established banks, maybe legacy banks in the 90s and all that, but also digitalizing them now because they're responsible to distribute the wealth of a country into productive assets. That is their responsibility mainly. They create deposits, right, from people and then they are to redistribute it which is not always the case. They may redistribute it to sectors which they think are not <laughs> yeah. the economy, but that's their main. Uh, what they need to pivot in, and they are now starting to do that, is also offering additional services. I mean, I don't think the, the concept will change, because that is what they're supposed to do. Uh, they're the custodian of people's money, but then that money is being used by them, right? But they are also responsible to ensure that the money that they are lending is being used for what it is meant to be used for and the impact is being felt. So going forward, they need to pivot into a capability of being able to educate the users of that money, which has been borrowed from others. So this is what you call smart money, smart right? Money. It should be smart, but it should be made smart by providing them some sort of advisory services, which is the responsibility of the bank. The other thing that the banks need to make sure is that they are being sustainable. So we have these sustainable development goals, which we're supposed to meet by 2030. Uh, so are banks lending to companies which are going to further our ability to meet those goals? So is it just profitability or is it also ensuring that the money is being used for sustainable development of that jurisdiction of that country? in terms of uh, environment, in terms of making sure that women are equally participating, in terms of ensuring that uh, governance is proper. So all this is responsibility of a financial institution for the, only, for the simple reason that they are the ones who are enabling that to happen. Because if the bank doesn't give the money, 
mm-hmm. the project will not happen, right? It won't be exactly. Or maybe not a bank and another investor. So that is what investors, and they've started doing it. They need to pivot into being able to offer these services or at least enforce them on the people who are using their resources to add more value to the economy. I mean, that's my long answer. No, <laughs> I, answer. I, I actually like, like it. And uh, you, you just uh, somehow can, I would say, prove my, my view on a digital transformation, actually. Because uh, you mentioned that they, uh, by doing pivot, they need to start bringing new offering, new products to clients. And this is what I really believe that digital transformation, it's actually the main, one of the main values that it brings to enterprise. It's an opportunity to develop new products and uh, develop a new streams of revenue. Uh, something that uh, uh, this particular business and particular startup, or enterprise, sorry, didn't, didn't have before. Okay, so by doing the digital adoption and becoming a digital, we're actually getting this opportunity to develop stuff that we even didn't think about it before. Absolutely. Okay, it's not just about optimization of processes. It's not, it's not, I mean, I, I give you a very good example also now, just coming back to the bank and sustainability. So let's say it lends to a project which is uh, being sustainable because they have equipment which will, not, uh, which will reduce emissions of carbon monoxide or carbon dioxide. Right? So they're being responsible. The bank will not fund them unless they have that. Now they have that, but how much carbon monoxide or dioxide are they saving? And how do you calculate that? So digital technology can enable you to calculate that yep. because of this, they are saving so many tons. But more though, so, so, so what? They're saving that. How do you monetize that then? Talking about value. So because of that, what is the monetary value of that saving? So digital technology can enable you to do that, amongst many other things. I mean, this is one small example. And a lot of companies, by the way, are requesting. Uh, well, let me just say that firstly, I, I'm advising a lot of startups, by the way, and entrepreneurs, uh, and also on some boards of uh, institutions. But let's say startup. So they're, they're like it, institutions that, that are having you as a board member. But like uh, a startup, I say your differentiation is, are you also talking about sustainability? So you may have a pain point which you're addressing that, okay, credit is not going to this part, so my platform will enable it. But I say have something which also is moving you towards sustainable development goals. If it's literacy, if it's poverty alleviation, whatever, embed that. And then also say that the value add you bring is that you are able to track it for that for your company. Absolutely. So it's not that you're saying, okay, I'm giving more jobs to women. How do you track that, that you're giving more jobs? So yep. that you need a digital dashboard. So these Absolutely. things are happening already. It's actually kind of, uh, now we're coming to another question. Like once you, you were talking about enterprises must use 20, uh, 2020 this year to Heal, the, heal the, themselves and emerge not as their previous selves, but different. Could you please explain this? This was from the perspective of sustainability again, because a lot of what COVID has taught us in 2020, there have been closure of businesses, and a lot of businesses were not able to sustain themselves because they were you know, too focused on profitability or shareholder value. They were not focusing on their clients. 
They were not focusing on the other stakeholders. So sitting back at home and having a business which you see is dying, maybe it's a restaurant. When you start your business again, the empathetic, empathetic part of the human being should be more visible mm -hmm. in terms of that they should make sure that the business is not only looking at uh, their profitability or the shareholders, but also at all the stakeholders. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is what I mean by reinventing themselves as new businesses. Uh, we saw reductions in carbon emissions during this period because people were not going out. We saw a lot of videos of wild animals coming into the cities, yep. many countries, because, you know, they started breathing more and people. So th this is nature and nature heals itself. So this disaster, I mean, a lot of people say this, this viruses would not spread if we did not pollute, if we did not uh, destroy the earth we live in, if we didn't cut the forests. So more of this type of work, but this has to be embedded in the businesses themselves. Yep. Whatever business in, uh, you're in, if you can plant more trees as part of that business, or if you can reduce your carbon footprint because of that business, mm -hmm. or if you can be more kind to people who come to your restaurant but cannot afford the meal. So perhaps three meals or something like that. Yep. yep. So this is what I meant by that. Interesting. Yeah. It's cool. Um, once you said the, uh, some words, uh, maybe I'm mistaken, but uh, the, this is what was the meanings. Uh, responsible use of technology. So I see this uh, that you, and I know this, you're really focused on uh, bias data and bias algorithms, okay? So how do bias impact uh, the data and the innovation in general? And is it a problem? It's a big problem, I think it's a big issue even now. So there are two or three ways, and these biases can creep into an algorithm unwittingly also. I mean, not that I want to make it biased, but because of my mindset, if I've been working in a country where I just see white people, for example, or where there's discrimination, slightly discriminates. So let's say when recruiting, so this is real cases, right? They've been, HR has been using artificial intelligence, uh, but when they screen, uh, you know, 80% of those screened are male, because that's the bias. When we're actually interviewing, we say, okay, no, we want a male for this job. So those are biases which come into the algorithm. So this is the innovation part of the algorithm that, you know, we need to make sure that uh, we don't use our biases. The use of that, now it's made, you have this HR platform, for example, or, uh, you know, a justice platform where courts have to decide based on. So now the user, before just blindly taking that and started using it for hiring people, they need to ask the questions, okay, is this algorithm not going to discriminate between a black and a white or a male or a female or, you know, or gender or whatever? So they should ask this question. Mm -hmm. And they should test it before they start recruiting people instead of discovering it. I just found out, you know, you know, this in COVID, there's a lot of people have bought these. Uh, it's called pulse oximeters. Yeah, you put it on your finger and you say your oh, oxygen is 98 percent. So I just read recently that not all of them are accurate because most of them are made in Western countries. So the color of the skin will. So if you're dark skin, for example, and you use it, the reading may not be accurate. So you might be happy you're 98%, but it could be 58% and you might be dying. Wow. So these things also have started coming up because the reading is, it's just not that someone did it on purpose, 
but because it was made in the US, for example, or Europe for white people, and now you export it to Africa or to India or to Pakistan and they use it, the reading can be different. So th these things. Interesting. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know about this, by the way. I ran a few days ago, actually. Wow. This is really interesting wow. insight. It could be oximeter. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Kaiser, um, once you said, again, I did a lot of homework, <laughs> wow. you know, I, I was studying like, uh, so um, you said that blockchain is the flavor of the decade. Uh, may, may I make the assumption that you're really fascinating about this technology and you see the, the future of this technology and uh, what, what you see as a future or, or as opportunity? Okay. Look, uh, I mean, all these things I've said or written about were obviously within a certain time period, right? At that yeah. point in time, what was happening. And I think this must be maybe four years ago, perhaps five years ago, I was based actually in the UAE with the ISC and attending a lot of these conferences. There's yep. a conference there every, several every day, especially, you know, before COVID on digital transformation and, you know. So there was a lot of talk about blockchain. So anyone, I mean, you probably know that better than anyone else, that you could not have a discussion without the word blockchain. Even just passing, I mean, not talking about blockchain, just saying blockchain and then talking about something else. So I think that was why I wrote that it was the flavor of the decade that everyone was talking about it. But I think in the same article, I also go ahead, went ahead and said that the... That you don't see too, too many use cases. No, no, at that time not. But because of the way it was structured, although little understanding when I wrote it, not, and not, not just for me, many people didn't have that. But because of the fact that it was a distributed ledger. Yep. I mean, that also I learned that blockchain is not, it's not, it's actually dis distributed so, ledger technology. DLT and the blockchain, it's two so different that things. That was the fascinating part of it. So anything which required documentation and later on proving the ownership of that documentation, and especially from jurisdictions I worked in, in emerging markets, where, you know, people couldn't get loans, although they had a piece of land, because they couldn't prove that that land was theirs, because someone somewhere, you know, fudged the document. So this was very useful for releasing funding. My focus has always, most of my um, uh, development banker career has been on financial inclusion. Mm -hmm. So to me, this gave the ability to individuals who had land, and there were a lot of people who had land but couldn't borrow because they couldn't prove they owned it, that they could claim ownership of it. So for me, that so, was so fascinating. And today, I mean, we're seeing that it's being used a lot in, you know, in, in, in property deals and you know, data assets. So that's why it was, it still is the flavor, I would say, of the decade, right? So oh, the decade, the decade, yeah. The decade is still on. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Topic that we discussed quite, quite intense between you and me, but off camera, <laughs> about legacy. What do you mean by legacy when you talk about legacy? Uh, like, uh, I, I really believe that a lot of people in the world who will see the, this recording would appreciate your, your, your understanding of legacy, your view of legacy and how legacy actually disturbs uh, enterprises with the adoption of the new stuff. Well, I mean, legacy is exactly what it means. It's what has been inherited from the past. So it could be a legacy infrastructure. It could be a legacy person, which is more of a mindset. Mindset. It could be legacy policies. So obviously, the world is not static, right? Businesses are not static. 
they move forward. And when you move forward and you get into new territories, you get into new jurisdictions, you get into new technologies, you need new, new rules to be written around your ability to do business. Mm-hmm. One. The other is the capacity to be able to work in that new environment also needs to be there. So if you're coming in from a legacy mindset, which I think is more important than infrastructure, because I always say that, and again, we've had that discussion, technology is the easiest part. The, the mindset is the, yeah, the most challenging. Technology, you can buy a platform, you can talk to experts like yourself, and you know technology is available. How you deploy it, and whether you want to deploy it, and you understand it, is the legacy. So you need to move from that. And again, I don't know, you may have that quote or not. It's a quote which I quote. It's a, it's a paragraph I read in a book in 1978, a book by Alvin Tossler, and the book's name was Future Shock in 78. I didn't even read it with, with Future Shock in mind. I read it like a novel. You know? I remember this, guys. So what he said was that the, uh, the hallmark of an illiterate or the illiterate person of the 21st century will not be a person who cannot read or write. The illiterate person will be the person who cannot learn unlearn and relearn. So that is what is legacy. So legacy you have learned. Going forward, there are a lot of things you need to unlearn. Not only learn new things, but something which they have taught you that, you know, this cannot be done. You need to forget that. It can be done today. Yep. Let's say someone told you before the plane was invented that you cannot fly. We, we, we need to eliminate some, some, some limitations, 20, right? 20, the beliefs of those limitations. Time. And then you have to learn the new things. So that is what, so that is a successful CEO who moves from a legacy mindset to a mindset which is needed for undertaking business in the current environment. And that means using and leveraging technology for whatever he is doing, just to improve that. So, I mean, we can talk more about it, but in a nutshell, this is what legacy is. And you need to move away from legacy always if you want to advance. You can stay there if you like, but then you're not going to be part of the digital revolution or, you know, the industrial revolution or whatever revolution is there. I, I, I always say it's not even going to be a stagnation. It's going to be a degradation. Absolutely. I, I don't believe in stagnation. Like it's only a progress or degradation. Stagnation is, it's almost a death. Like. And it's simple if you allow me, I mean, again, you said I had a lot of stories. So one other story is when I used to go into a boardroom doing digital transformation for a bank. And let's say this was in, I can say in Morocco, I walked into a boardroom and started talking about digital transformation. So it was a few board directors, mostly senior management and the CEOs. Um, and a few of them, because these are informal discussions, you know, as, as IFC, people are more open to talking to you. You know, because it's like, you know, you're not, you're not a private company, you're more of a, of a global company and someone who is neutral. So that's what yeah. I say, we are a neutral sort of a, people open up. So a lot of these people were saying that, you know, it's very difficult for us to start using technology now. And this is 2018, I think this was happening in 2018. Uh, and that is why things are moving slowly. We know we need to use technology, but you know, we've been working in this bank. So I said, who is the oldest guy in this room? And by 2018, it was me. <laughs> Most of these guys were 55, 56, 50. I was three years ago, 60, 61. I said, I'm the oldest guy sitting here, right? So I have not bought by legacy. I have learned all that. 
Second question I asked, how many of you are using a smartphone? All of them had a smartphone in front of them. They were actually even writing. Oh, well, writing it, right? Yeah. I said, this is technology. So why are you scared of using technology? This, you are using technology, all right. Age is no factor, and I am a strong believer in that. Although even today people say that, you know, above 60, they need to have this and they have No, it's the no. mindset. It's a mindset. I started this digital journey, maybe when I was 55, it's been about 10 years. Been monitored. So if you want to change, if you understand that you need to change, you can change. I mean, that's what I have learned. I would like to teach. <laughs> awesome. And Mr. Kaiser, I, I know we can talk about this forever. Okay, and, um, and but time is flying, and I'm seeing the uh, the signs that uh, like we're running out of time. At the end of this amazing chat, do you have any plugs that you would like to make, and uh, kind of last last thoughts? Look, uh, I mean, there's several things which I leave uh, again, depending on who I address. A lot of my focus over the past year or two years has been on younger people, on the youth, on entrepreneurs. Uh, because we're in an age of innovation, right? We're looking at coming up with solutions which will enable the world. And when I talk about the world, I mean the components of the world, which are businesses, which run the world, which are individuals. Because all this together, if they work in harmony, that's what the world is, right? So each one of them needs to ensure that whatever they're doing it, doing or innovating or using innovation has to be done responsibly. So entrepreneurs, my message to them is that innovate. Uh, don't wait for regulations to be in place, but work with the regulators because you will need regulatory frameworks around any innovation, but the yeah. regulatory framework will never come during your innovation. You have innovated, now you have to prove that this innovation is useful for society. So that's one thing for the, for the innovators and make sure that you have innovated with responsibility. So think through that is it going to harm a lot of people and do good to a few people who I'm telling you, or will it benefit, we'll the, society be benefit the society? Okay, that's, and the second thing which I would like to leave, leave back is that you know people are always learning. So it's not that I am giving you any words of wisdom. I've learned, I mean, Misha, I've learned a lot from you over this, you know, uh, the time we've been uh, discussing this and we've known each other. I've learned from a lot of people uh, and you learn every day. So don't be shy of learning and asking questions. And that's the way to give a secret. I sort of got into this digital transformation by attending conferences. I mean, 10 years ago, no one had a digital. I learned in two conferences that even those guys who were speaking had no really clue about what they're talking about. Some idea, right? <laughs> Some idea, because this is 10 years ago. Today, yes, you have a lot of people. You have experts. You have people like yourself. Uh, so. Don't be shy to learn and don't be shy, more importantly, to unlearn things which perhaps you think that you know, but not. The legacy stuff. Legacy stuff. Awesome. So, Mr. Kaiser, I really, really enjoyed this conversation. And I'm sure that uh, a lot of people that will, will see this recording will enjoy and learn a lot. So, I really want to thank you. Well, and I hope I've, so. I've, I'd like to thank you, actually, Misha. I mean, like I said, I repeat, I've learned a lot of things from you and I think the work you're doing, especially using the DLD and blockchain technology, you know, in, in supply chain, like you said, and also in recycling, which is also part of the supply chain, but specifically, I think that's going to have a big impact on the SDGs that we spoke about. And actually we should do a separate 
doggone SDGs. It's a whole project, a whole topic. I'm, I'm sure we will have a lot of discussions. It's not the, our last recording and last conversation. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to another episode at the State of Innovation. If you have feedback for us, including topics, guests, or maybe you just want to say hello, send us an email at info at stateofinnovation.show. Visit our website at stateofinnovation.show for this episode, future episodes, and you can also find this content on YouTube, Spotify, and a slew of other podcasting channels. And of course, there's quite a lively conversation happening on LinkedIn. The new digital era has begun, and the State of Innovation podcast hopes to help take your enterprise confidently there. The State of Innovation squad hopes you've enjoyed this podcast.